we say that our desire is to be a community of grace and peace for our city. And right now we have to acknowledge that our city is going through a lot. There's a lot of heaviness. Uh, just this morning there was a shooting at a bar near the farmer's market and uh, at this point they're anticipating that 10 people uh, were shot and at least one dead already in this violent tragedy, which is just one among many stories that is sweeping through our city. Just last Sunday, we had the man that was killed in the officer-involved shooting uh, just on the other side of downtown here. Uh, and recognize that this is creating deep pain and deep sadness in our city. My heart is heavy for those who lost their lives in this violence and their families who are wrestling with the pain of their loss right now. My heart is heavy for the police officers and first responders who have a lot more that they have to think about every time they take a step outside their door to show up to work each day. My heart is heavy for my neighbors and the communities of color around our city who experience unfair levels of mistrust just trying to live day-to-day -day life and they experience disproportionate levels of harm from injustice. I cannot imagine what this week feels like for those neighbors. And my heart goes out to all of the peacemakers who are trying to hold us together as a city, whether it's the activists or the neighborhood leaders or the pastors or those working in the city administration that are doing everything they can to see that we as a city find our way together. My heart is with them. I think it's only right that we take some time this morning as a church that desires to be a community of grace and peace for our city to pray for grace and peace for our city. So I want us to take just maybe 30 seconds in silence and during that time you can pray for our city. You can uh, think, you can meditate uh, for the goodness of all in our city and then I'll close us with a time of prayer. Let's pray. God, we just come to you with heavy hearts. I feel like the things we're going through are more than we can bear on our own. And the causes and the problems behind them are greater than we can comprehend or solve in any simple manner. We ask for your presence with us, with all who are hurting and with all who are mourning and with all who wake up a little more fearful this morning. Show them your peace. Be with each of us as neighbors and allow us the courage and the capacity to extend grace and goodness to those who may be hurting. Give us the words, put us in the right places. Allow us to be a reflection of your goodness. Thank you for your presence with us. Continue to bring your peace. In the name of Jesus, amen not entirely unrelated in a bit of transition this is an interesting week because this is also a holiday week this week we celebrate Juneteenth which we celebrate each year on Wednesday June 19th and if you're not familiar Juneteenth is the holiday celebration that we celebrate the ending of slavery in the United States 
it's not actually, yes, it's not actually the, the exact anniversary of the ending of slavery because slavery technically ended with the Emancipation Proclamation. But the Juneteenth that we celebrate is celebrating a date two and a half years later because it took that long for Union forces to get down to Galveston, Texas to tell the slaves who are working there uh, what happened two and a half years earlier and finally put an end to slavery in America. So what we are celebrating today is great cause for celebration that there is no more slavery in our country. But at the same time, it is a great reminder and a necessary reminder of the evils both that led to slavery itself and to the thinking that led to slavery. May this be a reminder that moves us forward. From Africa's heart, we rose. Already a people, our faces ebony, our bodies lean, we rose. Skills of art, life, beauty, and family. Crushed by forces we knew nothing of, we rose. Survive we must, we did, we rose. We rose to be you, we rose to be me. Above everything expected, we rose. To become the knowledge we never knew, we rose. Dream we did, act we must. Freedom will not come today, this year, nor ever through compromise and fear. I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my two feet and own the land. I tire so of hearing people say, let things take their course. Tomorrow's another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong seed planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. Hey, uh, one last thing on, uh, on the announcements conversations I wanted to say is if hearing any of that uh, is difficult for you, maybe it's a perspective you haven't heard before on one side or the other, I encourage you to do something I learned a while ago is find somebody on the other side and reach out and have a conversation with them about that. Like, what am I missing here in this situation that it's hard for me to hear uh, the struggle from one side or the other or why one side doesn't seem like the obvious answer in this situation, right? So if you find you're struggling there, find somebody on the other side and ask them. And if you need help finding somebody that you can ask, come talk to me and I'll try and point in a direction of wise voices that I listen to that can help you as well. Sound good? All right, let's transition into this. Um, it's a story I've told you before, uh, but the reality is, and I think Jay's even said this before, is uh, I love being a pastor most of the time. 
right? Most of the time being a pastor is great, but there's sometimes that being a pastor isn't that great. And it's, it's a lot of times when you start being treated differently as soon as people know you're a pastor, right? Like I'll be in my neighborhood walking around, talking to a neighbor, having a really great, really raw, gritty, authentic conversation with a neighbor that I feel like we're really getting somewhere with. And then as soon as he finds out I'm a pastor, it's like all of a sudden I'm talking to the Pope, right? Right, like quoting Bible verses at me, like, like knows every single thing in the Bible and wants me to know that he knows everything in the Bible. And I joke about it, uh, but I get it because it's something that I've experienced too, because it's easy to have insecurity about our spirituality. Right, as we look at our lives and we see where we're at, it's easy to start feeling insecure about it sometimes, especially when you're around somebody whose story or even just whose title seems especially uh, spiritual in some way, right? We, we feel like we need to do something to, to change things or to improve ourselves or just to prove who we are to the other person. And again, I've been that person. I remember growing up in church, and you know, my dad was a pastor, so every day I had to show up and I had to see my dad with this title of pastor, like up on this stage, and we had this big grand pulpit and everything, right? And you see that and you're like, wow, like that's really spiritual going on up there. But then I would look around and I'd see the other people in the church too. And I, I remember sitting next to my mom and, you know, the music would be going and she'd be really getting into it. Like if we were like hand raising people, she would have done that. But like we were Baptists, so we didn't do that, you know. Uh, and I remember watching her and being like, she's really spiritual too, right? And then you had the people in the church that had titles, elders and deacons and all these different things. I just remember watching that and, and thinking to myself, like, I love God. Like, I want to walk with God, but there seems to be something very different between me and what I'm seeing all around me, right? And then you go to funerals, and at funerals, people will just be telling the stories of the lives of the people. Remember when Susan did this, and remember when Susan did that? And, and I just remember as people would rehash these memories, thinking how amazing every single person who died must be a saint, you know? Like, because you just got story after story after story. And as adults, I realize that that's not reflective of the wholeness of life, right? Like, that's just kind of the highlight reel. And, you know, if you just went from the highlight reels, even baseball looks interesting, right? So, <laughs> not necessarily reflective of... <laughs> I have the microphone today. When you have the microphone, <laughs> then we can talk about soccer then, okay? For now, it's baseball. Right? And, and then there was these stories of you had the missionaries and you had the martyrs and you had the Bible heroes and all these people that just put their lives on the line for God. And you just sit there as a kid and you're like, how can I ever match up to that? And so my day-to-day -day experience was what I saw and what I knew. There was nothing wrong, but there was also like not a lot right. It just felt like numb you know, and thinking about my walk with God, or worse than numb, it felt inadequate as I thought about things. If I was absent these big memorable experiences, what was it that was going on me, if anything? If I'm not doing remarkable spiritual things, or if I'm not feeling these great big feeling spiritual emotions, or if I'm not radically changing the world in some tangible way that I can tell a story about, what am I doing anyway? Where's the proof or validation of my spirituality or my walk with God? 
And so this led in me this, uh, this uh, pursuit of the next big thing, right? I was just desperately looking for it. So I'd go to the next youth conference or the next camp, right? Just, just hoping for some experience that would get me fired up, that would help me to feel like, yeah, you really are walking with God, Ryan, or the next book, or the next mission trip, or the next extreme service experience, and the more dangerous or the more helpful, the better, right? Because then I could really know that I was making a difference in the world, and I was walking with God. And it went so far that if I'm honest, I was kind of rooting for bad things to happen in life. Because when bad things happen, then there's opportunities for big things, right? And then you get a story from that that we called testimonies. And then you could share your testimony in church. And I just so desperately wanted the validation that something was going on, that I was willing to go through bad things just so I could get a story, just so I could share that story in church and feel like everything was okay. It was this pursuit of the big moment, spiritually desperate for anything that felt better than the numbness that I felt. But as I looked into it, the more I started to see that I was fundamentally misunderstanding what walking with God looked like. I began to realize over time, and as I grew and as I matured and as I looked at the story of God we see in the Bible, that God's not expecting the big things from me that I was expecting from myself. Today we're going to look at this more. We're going to look at the stories of two people that are known as kind of Bible heroes that were helpful to me in my new understanding of what it meant to walk with God in simplicity. We're going to look today at Daniel and Esther. Now I recognize that those are two entire books of the Bible, so we're going to be here a while. No, not really. But I also need you to understand that because we're covering two books of the Bible, I'm not going to read these entire stories, okay? So we will hit some high points here and there. The most of it you're just going to have to trust me on. Okay, but I think that also on this, if I can stand on the side soapbox over here, this is my side soapbox. Uh, if I can stand on the side soapbox, I had an Old Testament professor who told me that a lot of these Old Testament stories, uh, the goodness in them is the story as a whole. Right? You might sit down in literature sometime and read a short story and be moved by the wholeness of the story together. But so oftentimes, because we're working at sermons for churches, we only take like a verse or two at a time or a paragraph or a thought at a time, and we miss the big picture of what's going on in entire books or entire collections of books together. Sometimes the meaning is in the wholeness of them. And so today it is a massive task, but we're going to try and dive in. So stick with me in this as we cover both Daniel and Esther here this morning. All right, there's some similarities here. Uh, the settings of the two stories are approximately the same. We're dealing with people that are dealing with exile. So exile is what we talk about God's people, the Hebrew people, uh, the Hebrew Jewish people, people of Israel, right? God's people were living in the promised land, the land that God had called them to, the land that they felt like they were supposed to be, the land that helped them to feel and be close with God. So they're living in the promised land. Over time, they were unfaithful, and uh, enemies from Assyria and Babylon came in, and they conquered them, and they actually carried off the people and made the people of that land, the Hebrew people, go and live in their foreign lands in Babylon and in Assyria, which eventually became 
the Persian Empire. So we're talking about exile. We're talking about God's people in a foreign land, wondering where God is and how they should respond. Both of these stories are stories of young Hebrew people in this foreign land who rise up and earn the favor of kings. So it's quite remarkable stories from both of them. They end up becoming heroes for their people. And though these are individual stories in the Bible, and they're actually not next to each other, it's not like when you're flipping through your Bible that they go back to back or anything, Uh, though they're two individual stories, I believe that these stories are given to us and meant to be read together. And I believe that for a couple of reasons. One is because of how similar they are, right? It's two nearly identical situations that that the two uh, heroes of the story respond to in different ways. Right, so they're very similar. The other reason I believe this is that after these books were written, uh, there are lists of important Bible, Bible literature books that were collected uh, before the time of Jesus and after the time these were written, and neither of these stories showed up in some of those earliest lists, and then all of a sudden they both started showing up on the list together. Right, so for some reason, these two stories both went from nobody cares to these are really important to us, both kind of at the same time. And I think the reason is because people were seeing these stories together. They were, there is purpose in the comparing and contrasting between these stories. And I believe these stories were taken by Israel to answer this collective question of exile. What do we do when we find ourselves feeling far from God? When you're not in the promised land anymore, when you're not in that place of nearness, when you find yourself in the foreign land, what do you do when you find yourself feeling far from God? All right, let's dive into Esther first, all right? That's a good place to start. So Esther is the story of this young woman living in Persia, formerly Babylon, due to exile. And so as she's growing up there, there's the king there. The king is Ahasuerus, which is a fun name. And he is married to Vashti. And Ahasuerus is kind of a jerk. So he throws these drunken wild parties and asks Vashti to come out and perform for him and all his friends, uh, which she does not believe to be appropriate as she is right. Okay, so she refuses to come out and to perform for him, rightly so. Uh, Normally this would result in her death, but instead it just resulted in her being deposed. And so uh, Ahasuerus needed a new wife as a king, uh, so he decided to have a beauty contest to decide who the new wife would be. Uh, And as, as the words of Elvis would tell us, the beauty contest was a little less conversation, a little more action, probably. Uh, So it was not your polite thing that you would see on TV these days. But Esther, this young Hebrew woman, ended up winning this beauty contest. She wins. She gets to be queen. It's amazing. She's thrilled. Okay, over time, the king has this right-hand man named Haman, right? And Haman is kind of like the second in command in all of the empire. And Haman starts to get upset at Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle slash kind of adoptive father, right? Uh, he's upset at Mordecai because Haman is used to people respecting him, which part of that in their culture means that people would bow when he passed by. But Mordecai would not bow when Haman passed by because Mordecai was Jewish and believed that he should only bow to God. Well, this made Haman upset. And honestly, I'll tell you in a while in a little bit, I think Haman had right to be upset in this situation. I'll come back to that. Haman was upset, but he took it in the wrong direction, a too far direction, and instead of just being upset with Mordecai, he decided that all Jews needed to be killed and wiped out from the empire. 
So he went to the king, he convinced the king, and the king said, yeah, sure, do whatever. Uh, so they made an edict that in a couple of weeks or down the road here, all of the Jews in the empire would be able to be slaughtered by the people of the kingdom. Well, this created a problem because obviously the king didn't know that his own wife was Jewish and that his own edict would be affecting her. Here's the drama in the story. So over time, then Mordecai goes to Esther, and he begs her to intervene. He's like, hey, we're not in a good spot here. Don't know if you know that, you know, but we're all going to die if you don't do something. So can you please go to the king and do something? And she says, I don't really want to do that because it's dangerous. Because actually we've been married for a while now, and he hasn't called me into him in a while. Which means if I go to him, I'm putting my life at risk because I could get killed for this type of thing. So I'd really probably rather not do it. And Mordecai says, we're going to die anyway. You're Jewish. You're going to die anyway. One way or another, this is not going to end well for you, so you might as well go and try and save all of us in the process. So he begs her. She does. And Esther, to her credit, regardless of whether or not she was probably going to die anyway, it still would take massive amounts of bravery to step in that door and to walk before the king. And she did that. And she stepped forward, and she told him the story she told him who she was. She told him about her identity. The king realized what was going on. He apologizes. He changes his plans. He makes a plan so that the Jewish people can defend themselves on that day when it happens, and they can actually fight back against their enemies and destroy their enemies instead of being destroyed, and everybody is saved. Boom, mountaintop moment. Esther is forever a hero. We've done it. And we've explained what it looks like when you feel far from God. What do you do? What is the lesson of the story? Well, you could say it's that when you're far from God, you should step up and be brave and fight for your rights and the rights of your people, and you'll be rewarded. That would be one story, which was kind of the story I took from this as I was reading it as a child. From this view, if Esther is an example of walking with God when you feel distant, it's definitely a next big thing kind of story. Find that next big thing. And when, so when I read this as a kid, I was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. You go, Esther. You know, you did it. You stepped up. You got your story. People are going to remember your name forever. And I looked for opportunities like that to prove myself. But I'm not sure that that's actually the point here. There's more to Esther, and there's actually some pretty significant critique built in. Now, if you're a pretty major Esther fan, like, I'm sorry for what this conversation we're about to have. Uh, but this is something, this isn't, I'm not making this up. This is something that's in there. This is something uh, that commentaries and scholars have been talking about for some time. Uh, let's talk about some of the critique built into Esther. First of all, let's look at the setting. Okay, so the setting of this story happens around four 80 BC in Persia. Well, the interesting thing about 480 BC and there in Persia is that 60 years before this, one of the Babylonian kings ended up releasing all of the Jewish people from exile and telling them they could go back to their land. They could go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He set them free. He told them that they could go. So the fact that Esther and Mordecai are still living in Persia, they're still living in the land of exile, tells us that they were not the people that chose to return to the promised land, to the land of their people, to the land where they believed that they were closest to God. They chose to stay settled in the comfortable place where they found themselves. 
which would not have been seen by the original readers of the story as something consistent with what a good Hebrew God-fearing person would do. So already in the setting, we have questions. Next, let's talk about names. I don't know if you know this, but names throughout the Bible are very important, and there's something worth focusing on, something worth thinking about. Do you know the Hebrew name of Esther? It actually is Hadassah, right? Hadassah is the Hebrew name, right? The name given by her family, by her people that reflects their importance of naming in their Hebrew tradition. Her name was Hadassah. Why are they telling us that her name is Hadassah? There's no reason except for us to know that there's a name that she doesn't go by. That is the name of her faith story. That is the name of her people. Instead, she goes by Esther, which is believed to be from Ishtar, which is the Babylonian goddess of love, is how we know her. And her dear uncle, uh, adoptive father Mordecai, Mordecai would not be his Hebrew name either. Mordecai actually means servant of Marduk, the Babylonian, chief Babylonian god. Right? So you can understand Haman's frustration when a man named servant of Marduk says that he's too holy to be able to bow down to the king's servant because he's so Jewishly religious. Right? You could see where the tension comes into play here in those claims. It's built in there in their names. Third, uh, we look at their faithfulness to tradition. What we saw of the people of Israel is that faithfulness to their traditions were an important part of their faith identity, right? You showed your identity, you showed your priorities, and how well you followed the traditions of your people. Now, in our society today, we kind of reject traditions. They're not so important to us. But for here and for the original readers of the story, they would have known that not following traditions is a sign that you are not taking things very seriously in your walk with God. And in this, we see, were they following the normal traditions of prayer or the clothing that you would wear or the diet that you would eat as the Hebrew people of God? Well, we do know that Esther blended in so well that not even her own husband or anyone in the king's court knew that she was Jewish. So to answer that question, no, she was not maintaining the traditions of her people that were important to them. And next, let's consider her character that we see in this story. There's an interesting story we see here at the end of Esther. After she has stepped up to the king, after the king has said, all right, people of Israel, I will make an edict that you also can stand up and fight off and kill your enemies so that uh, they don't kill you, right? That was what saved them. So after that has taken place and after the original edict has expired that that the enemies aren't going to be coming after them day after day, Esther returns to the king and asks him one more request at the end of this story. We see this in Esther 9, 12 through 16. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. So not only the enemies, but also they went and took revenge on Haman's sons. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request, Esther? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. Let us be able to go and slaughter our enemies tomorrow as well. And let Haman's ten sons, who we already killed, let us impale them on poles and hang them above the city. 
So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. Okay, so after all this is done, after the king's original edict has expired, after the people have stepped up and defended themselves and slaughtered their enemies, in case they had any other enemies out there that maybe someday would do their harm, she asked for permission to go out and preemptively slaughter the rest of her enemies, which raises some questions. And if all of this still is leaving questions, as we think about what kind of spirituality we're seeing here, there's more. Because what we're seeing so far is that Esther did this one big thing, but not, not much else as far as day-to-day walk with God. So the one last thing I want us to consider is that Esther is one of two books with an interesting distinction. Does anybody know what that is? One of two books in the Bible with a distinction. Esther is one of two books in the Bible in which God and prayer are neither one mentioned in the entire book anywhere. Now the other book that does this is Song of Songs, which is either Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, which is either a book about the goodness of sex or God's love for the church, one or the other. Uh, I'll let Jay work that out when he gets back. (laughs) But in this book, there is this entire story, and neither God nor prayer show up anywhere in it, which is strange. And so we start asking these questions. It's almost as if God is saying this in, the, in this story. Even when you don't walk with me, even when you're not entirely faithful in the little day-to-day things, even when you don't do the things that you should be doing day in and out, even when you don't do this, I'll still walk with you. I'll still walk with you. But let's not put my name on this thing. Right? Like this is not how it's supposed to go. This is not the example that we should all be following from this point forward. This is something, but it's not the way I intend for things to work. Let's contrast that with Daniel then, okay? So Daniel, also a young Hebrew boy, carried away from his land, finds himself in Babylon in the court of the king. Daniel and and his friends are being uh, groomed by the king to be great servants in the king's palace, right? The king wants them to be uh, strong and wise and good-looking, so when he has them around them, it is impressive for whoever comes to visit him. So Daniel and his friends find themselves in the palace of the king, and ultimately, Daniel, like Esther, earns the favor of kings and the freedom of his people. Very similar stories. Now, there's two main hero stories from Daniel I want us to look at. The first story is a story you hate telling vegans because you never hear the end of it. Right? And I can say that because my wife is one. All right. So in this first story that comes up uh, of Daniel, um, so Daniel and his friends are in the king's court, and the, the king wants to feed them his best wine and his best meat and steaks and stuff like that, right? Which sounds like a dream gig, right? Like, if you can get that, where somebody just wants to feed you good food and fatten you up all day, like, I would take that, honestly. Uh, So he finds himself in this situation where the king is wanting to do this, again, to make himself feel good and feel impressive. Uh, But Daniel has a response for that. 
In Daniel 1.8, here's Daniel's response. It said, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So in this story, all of this stuff is being offered, and Dan, Daniel says, I could eat these foods you're offering me, but it's against the faithfulness of the walk with God that me and my people have committed to, and so I'm not going to do it. And so he asked instead to eat just vegetables and water with the friends, which sounds horrible in comparison, but it was the faithful move for, for him and his people and his situation to do. So they did it, and after 10 days, him and his friends just ate vegetables and water. They were stronger, they were healthier, And as a result of it, God gave them the gifts of being able to interpret dreams, which ended up going on to earn them the favor of the kings that helped save the people down the road, right? This story is not this grand thing, right? Like, what did Daniel do here? Did he take a grand stand? No, he just said, like, hey, we kind of eat this other stuff. Can we still do that, right? That's the big deal, But you see, when we compare it to Esther, that it's very clearly different in the approach between the two stories, right? The second story we have of Daniel, the big hero story, is Daniel in the lion's den, right? So this is a story where Daniel confronted the king's wickedness, he was thrown in a pit, and he wrestled the lions into submission, right? No, that is not the story. Daniel did not do those things. He just maintained his daily prayer routine when the law said he shouldn't. (laughs) That was it. He just maintained his daily prayer routine. Daniel 6.10 says, When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, saying that you couldn't pray to anybody but the king, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day, just as he has always done, giving thanks to his God. All right, the words I need you to see in here is as usual and just as he has always done. This is not some grand act. This is not some one-time big thing. This is not some mountaintop moment that Daniel is taking a stand. Literally all he is doing is the same thing he did three times a day every boring, stinking day. He just did the same thing. But again, you compare it with Esther and you see quite the contrast. So Daniel was arrested, God calmed the lions, and the great story is just that he merely didn't die. One more point to know. Does anybody know what Daniel's Hebrew name was? It was Daniel. (laughs) But does anybody know his Babylonian name? It was Belteshazzar. Why did they tell us his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar? There's no reason except to tell us that he doesn't go by the name Belteshazzar. Right? They're merely trying to make the point that Daniel continues to go by his faithful Hebrew name in spite of having all these other things offered to him. These end up being really interesting stories. For the results of them, Right? Being thrown to lions and all these things, they're interesting for that, but they're not interesting stories for the actions that were taken. Because Daniel's story is not about finding the next big thing. Daniel's story is simply about doing the next good thing. The next simple good thing. He does very little. He does nothing out of the routine. And yet God is all over the book of Daniel. 
all throughout it, we see God in prayer and walking with God in this story. All right, bringing all this together. We too often, I believe, find ourselves roaming in our spirituality, thinking that we'll find God in these next great big moments. Right, if we can just get things for the highlight reel that they'll, they'll show at our funeral, right? If we can just make that next thing happen. If we can just have that next thing that makes for a great story in church the next time Jay opens the floor for open sharing time. If we can just get there, then everything will be good. And so, so often we reach out and we try to make something happen. We try to take things into our own hands and see what we can make of it. But often, like Esther, the result is something that may be okay, but maybe it's something that God wouldn't really want to put his name on. But instead, walking with God when we feel distant is more about taking that next simple step in front of us, just that next simple step and trusting that the path will take us where we need to go. So what about this? What about instead of shaping this perfect spiritual life, right, and planning it all out and making sure that we go big and do everything just the way we should, what if we just take the next simple step of trying to be mindful of God's presence at some point this afternoon? What if it's just that simple of taking that next step in front of us? What if instead of becoming the perfect person, I just try to extend grace to my wife this afternoon when I'm frustrated? What if instead of setting out to change the world, what if I just say yes the next time my neighbor comes to me and asks for a favor? Right? We can get so caught up in the big picture things that we miss out on the simple good things right in front of us. James, the brother of Jesus, says it's as simple as this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, if you know the good you ought to do, and then you don't do it, that is when you've missed out. When you know the good thing, and you don't do it, that's what it's about. It's not about going out and finding the absolute best thing and always having to go find these big next things. It's just when you know the next good thing, do you take that step? What's the next good thing in front of you? The next simple good thing. When you see it, I encourage you to step into it. Can you stand with me? Uh, as we leave today, I want to remind you, so in accordance with what we were talking about at the beginning of the service, at 3.30 today, there is a town hall where our city is coming together to ask its questions, to share its grief together, and to try and talk through that together. That's at 3.30 today at Washington High School, and it's a great way to participate in the life of our community as we try and move forward into healing together. I encourage you towards that. Let's pray together. God, may you relieve us of the burden of the next big thing. May you show us the simple good things right in front of us. And may you give us the courage to take that next good step. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great day.